Father, we do need you. We need you every hour. We need you all the time. And we thank you that you are there. That you opened the way up to yourself through your son Jesus who died for our sins. And that we now, because of Christ, have a relationship with you. Father, we praise you for your son who died for our sins. And Father, we thank you that we can come and worship you and sing your praises this morning. And I pray we would continue to worship you with a right heart as we go into your word. That you would help us see ourselves rightly. And when we do, we would respond rightly and allow you to work in our hearts today. Lord, we thank you for this time and we commit it to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, many people ask the question, why does God allow evil? Why do the wicked prosper? Even in scripture, we see God's people asking this question. Take, for instance, Psalm 73. The psalmist says, uh, why are they prospering? I'm paraphrasing. Why are they getting away with these things? They have no pains, no, no difficulties. You know, it's apparent that the psalmist was asking the question in Psalm 73, which we'll look at later on, is discouraged. He's discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're following the Lord and you see those around you who don't know Christ prospering, getting away with their sin, almost seemingly being rewarded for it. That alone can be discouraging. And yet within that, we're going to see today that God is a gracious God who encourages his servants. And we're going to see that he's going to reveal that Christ will reign. Christ will reign in the midst of a time in which these people would very much be discouraged that we're going to look at. But Christ will reign and his day will come. Would you turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai? We're going to be looking at the last portion of it, verses 20 to 23. We're going to be finishing our look in this little short series in this uh, wonderful book. And just a reminder of the context, the broader context. uh, After the conquest of Canaan, the Jews were in the land for 490 years. And after Solomon died because of his sin, the the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. And during the time leading up to uh, the exile, prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah continued to warn Israel and Judah of the coming destruction, that they needed to repent. But they didn't repent. And then Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then Judah soon would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C., As prophesied by Isaiah, Cyrus took over and changed the foreign policy concerning captive peoples. And in 538 B.C., he decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. We see that in Ezra chapter 1 through 3. And then we have about 50,000 devout followers of the Lord leaving a very comfortable life in Babylon where they had become prosperous, to return to their beloved Jerusalem, which had been destroyed, temple destroyed also, so that they could worship the Lord and rebuild the temple and be about his business. Now, within a year, they had laid the foundation of the temple. You see that in Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Unfortunately, Ezra also records that they stopped building the temple because of some uh, difficulties, obstructions, and, and an injunction by the Persian Empire emperor. And that stoppage, at least initially, was understandable. But yet 16 years had gone by and they had not gotten back to 
the reason why they had left Babylon, which was to be about the Lord's business. And this is where Haggai comes in, where we see they've spent time beautifying their own houses rather than working on his house. And Haggai, the Lord through Haggai, shares the truth to these uh, people who are followers of the Lord that they might respond rightly. Now the year is 520 B.C. and it's been 18 years uh, since they had been re- since they had been released from Babylon, 16 years since they laid the foundation and stopped. And this brings us to the immediate context. And what I wanted to do was review these sermons in the book of Haggai that we've gone through in the last four weeks. First of all, remember the first sermon, which is uh, which encompasses chapter one. Not my first sermon. We made two sermons out of it. The first sermon that Haggai shared, right, in chapter one that God called on his people to address their misplaced priorities. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, and remember, Haggai is one of the most uh, accurately dated books in the New Testament. The dates are very important. They play into an understanding of what God wants to show us here. The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? And we saw that paneling was very expensive and that there were things that you had to import from other places to to do this place. And they were spending time on their own houses. And God was calling them on their priorities. Hey, my house lies desolate. That's the reason why you left Babylon. And yet you are beautifying your houses. And we'll see that on each one runs to his own house. And we saw there's nothing wrong with taking care of your own house. But the point is, what are your priorities? And for them, their priorities were were upside down. And so the Lord shared with them to consider their ways. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Literally means set your heart upon your path. Set your heart upon your life. Think about your life. And that's what we need to do as believers. And remember, these are people who want to follow the Lord. These aren't the fakers and the ones who kind of come and just do do the church thing and leave. These are people who want to follow the Lord, but have been distracted from what God has called them to do. And so the Lord says, consider your ways, set your heart upon your ways. And notice what he says, verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it in a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We're going to see the Lord was thwarting their their lives. He was allowing his discipline to be on their lives. They had some things. They had paneled houses, but yet their things were going through their fingers. They were being disciplined. There was a lack of satisfaction, and God's disciplinary hand was upon them. I'll come back to verse 8, but look at verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, and this is the Lord speaking through Haggai, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine, on the oil and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. God's disciplinary hand was upon them. And we know from Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If you're not being disciplined by the Lord, or you haven't been disciplined by the Lord, then you're an illegitimate child, because God is a good father who disciplines righteously that we might share in his holiness. Well, how about you? Are you dissatisfied with life? Do you have a lack of contentment? Is your walk with him dry? Consider your ways. Is God's disciplinary hand upon your life? Think about your life. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And those symptoms should point you to the ultimate reality. Are you about God's business or not? You see, what God was wanting them to do, look at verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. They were to be about the business that God had called them out of Babylon for. And we as believers have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called into a relationship with the living God, and we've been called to be holy like he is holy. He is changing us, making us like Christ. We are, as Peter would say, living stones being built up that we would offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. We now are the temple of the living God, individually and corporately, true believers. And within that, God wants us to be about his work, about what he is doing, what he is doing in our lives, making us like Christ and in the midst of all of our relationships, all the situations in our life, individually and corporately. We are to be pleasing and glorifying God. We are to be about his work. So what should our priority be? That God would be pleased and glorified, that we would be about his business and not our own. Now, we see every day we have the temptation and the opportunities to be about our own life or or his business. And it's very clear that we make choices on a moment-by-moment basis. Some of those choices are not sinful in and of themselves, but they can be that which is not what God wants us to do or to be about his business. We we need to be about his business that he would be pleased and glorified. And so God was convicting them through Haggai to examine their lives. And hopefully we've examined our lives. Lord, where are my priorities? Where is the focus in my life? Is it about what you saved me for? Or is it about my own life? Have I slipped back into subtly following my own desires? You see, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. You delight yourself in him and he'll change your desires to be about his business in the midst of all the things that we have to do. In the midst of our work, in the midst of our family, in the midst of church, in the midst of uh, the world that we have to be in but not of. He'll give us joy and, and happiness in the midst of that in the context of following him. So then, what was their response? Look at the end of the sermon here, first sermon in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil. Now remember, Zerubbabel, and we'll need to know this later on, he is the governor of Judah, and he is in the line of David. If there was a king at this time, he would have been the king of Judah. But they were under the Persians, so there was no king. And then we have uh, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. He's the, the high priest. And then with notice, with all the remnant of the people, 
you know, God seems to work through remnants. You see that in the Old Testament. Even though the Jews didn't believe, the Apostle Paul says in, in, in Romans, there's a remnant. There was a remnant. There's a remnant here of those who are faithful. Yet even, even though they're faithful, they got distracted. Notice what? They obey, they obey, not obey, they obeyed, right? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. God decided to reveal his word through Haggai the way he wanted to do so. And they obeyed it in the context of how God had brought that forth. And then it says, they showed reverence for the Lord, the end of verse uh, 15. The people showed reverence for the Lord, or excuse me, the end of verse 14. And so with this in our, verse, verse 12, excuse me. So we have them hearing with the intent of obeying. The term obey means to hear. Coming to God's word, listening with the desire, I want to do what he says. And I hope that's your heart when you come to church. You're not here to, certainly we need to be Bereans and make sure it's rightly divided. But when it's rightly divided, we should be like, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to hear your word. I want to grow. I want to change. And they listened. These are true believers with the intent of obeying. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And then what comes naturally when you're walking rightly with the Lord, they showed reverence for him. They showed reverence for the Lord. They showed reverence for the Lord. You know, uh, we need to show reverence for the Lord. We need to be humble before him. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 1. And you see, when your heart's right before the Lord, it'll, it'll change your attitude about the Lord, by the way. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and a place that I may rest? For my hand has made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the one I'm going to look to, the humble, contrite, and the ones who fear God's word, fear the Lord. You know, so often I know it's the problem with people who try to follow the Lord and yet have so much difficulty following the Lord, is there's a lack of humility and contriteness. We are sinful and we sin so often in so many ways. And the Lord says, this one I will look to. And these Jews, they feared the Lord. They revered the Lord. Psalm 119.38, establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. Lord God, use your word. I don't know if you ever prayed this before, but the psalmist did. As that which causes me to reverence you. There should be a response when we get into God's word. If there isn't, something's wrong. And that, what that something is some type of sin. And God is gracious to reveal it if you're willing to let him. So then... They listened to the word of God and they showed reverence. And notice what God did, verse 13, chapter 1. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission, or the message, literally the message of the Lord, to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Well, this is quite different because earlier he said, this people, there was distance. And now he says, I am with you. I'm with you. When you want to do the right thing, you show a right heart towards the Lord. God is with you. That's not that he ever left them because they're his people, right? But he left them in the sense he didn't agree with the direction they're going. 
Maybe the Lord is not with you in what you are doing in your life, even though you're a believer. Confess, show reverence, obey the Lord, and He is with you. He is with you. And then notice what it says, verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. The Lord stirred up their spirits, and we're going to see that was to do His business. This is the same language that was used when God stirred up their spirits to leave Babylon, to follow Him. And so they stirred up, He stirred up the spirit of these, these, these leaders and the remnant. And notice what it says. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of, the Lord of hosts, their God. They were about what God wanted them to do. And notice the date. On the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius, the king. You see, when we are about hearing God's word with a right heart and fearing him and reverencing when the word works in our hearts, then God will encourage us and empower us to be about what he wants us to do. You see, we're not adequate for anything to come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And when you have a right heart before him, he empowers you and encourages you to do those things he wants you to do whether it's raising your family in a godly manner, whether it's doing your work heartily unto the Lord, whether it's serving with the strength that He supplies, whatever it might be, He encourages and gives the power to do so when our hearts are right before Him. So then we have the Lord working in His people here. And maybe the Lord is saying to you and I, what is the condition of my house? Is it laying in ruins right now? Is it, is it in spiritual ruin, not being built up more like Christ? What is the condition of my house? Have you considered your ways? Are you about his business? If not, you will continue to experience dissatisfaction and God's disciplinary hand. But God is gracious. If you choose to obey him and reverence him in the context of a real relationship, he will encourage you and empower you. Well, that leads us to the chapter 2 and the second message that we saw. In verses 1 to 9, look at verse 1. On the 21st of the 11th month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So a little less than a month has gone by and God brings this question through Haggai. Who has seen uh, the former temple in its glory? That was the temple of Solomon. You can read through 1 Kings. This is a magnificent temple that God designed, David prepared to get ready to build, and Solomon built it. It was a wonderfully magnificent temple. And now these guys are working on this shabby little rebuild um, in, 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 in Jerusalem. And he's saying, has anyone around you seen that first one? How does this one look? Is it nothing in comparison? Comparison? Notice that word. A little less than a month had gone by, and I believe the people had probably become discouraged. You remember we read in, in Ezra where when they first laid the foundation 16 years earlier, the people who had come who were young were praising God and, and, and saying amen. And the people who were old were weeping because it looked so terrible. And you couldn't distinguish between the weeping and the praising. Remember that? 
Well, evidently some of these old timers are still around and maybe they're weeping over what it looks like and people are getting a little discouraged possibly because it doesn't seem like anything in comparison. And folks, you know, whenever we compare the work of God with other works of God, you know, the first temple was God's work. This temple is God's work. You need to be careful. Don't compare. Trust the Lord because he's always doing things behind the scenes which we cannot see. And that's what God shares with them. He wants to encourage them because they're evidently fearful about it. They evidently need courage. So notice what he says in verse 4, chapter 2. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. It doesn't seem that great, but I am with you, so take courage. You're about my business. Take courage. Take courage. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. And as for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. We see in the little book of Zechariah, well, not little, 14 chapters, Zechariah, that the same contemporary with Haggai, that God was doing this through his spirit, not by night nor power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Do not despise the day of the small things. Same thing. Same thing. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land, and I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord. We saw a glorious future for the the temple in a sense. One in which we saw a prefiguring of this with Christ actually coming in there, bringing peace. But this seems to be pointing to the millennial temple when Christ will be reigning and everyone will be bringing their riches to him, to him. And the latter glory will be greater. And in this place, I shall give peace. God is the one who brings peace through his son, Jesus Christ. And the glory of what they were working on was nothing, but what God would ultimately do is very glorifying. And the principle and the lesson for us is don't focus on what you see. Obey the Lord because he's always doing something way beyond what we can see. And if we compare, we're going to be discouraged. If you walk by sight, you will be discouraged. We walk by faith and not by sight. So be strong and work and do not fear. Be strong and work and do not fear. And so this leads to the third sermon, which we looked at last week in verses 10 to 19. So two months have passed. They're doing what God wants them to do. He's encouraged them. But God's blessing has still not come in a sense. You see, Israel was in a covenant with the Lord. They had made an agreement with the Lord that if they obeyed, he would bless them. And there would be physical blessings, right? Now we as believers, we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. There's no promise of physical blessing. But they had a promise of that, that the rains would come, that God would bring forth harvest, that they would they would prosper if they obeyed the Lord in the covenant that they had in the land. And now we have this here. We have this point that two months have passed, and yet God's blessing hadn't come. They were still in a drought. They were still dissatisfied. They were still, in a sense, being disciplined by the Lord. And so the Lord uses through Haggai two questions to reveal what is wrong. 
What is wrong? Verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. Now again, in Leviticus, we see that there was a provision that if you had a difficulty that was too great, you would go to the priest to get a ruling in regards to the law. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, uh, through Haggai, the Lord says, Ask now the priest for a ruling. And here's the question. First one. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with the fold, with this fold or cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? You see, God had set apart certain ceremonial things concerning clean and unclean to, to give us a picture of the need for cleanliness, not cleanliness, but cleanness through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That God is a holy God and he needs to be approached by his standards. And ultimately those sacrifices would point to Jesus Christ. And so here, this is a question. If someone has holy meat, it's been set apart, and it touches other meat, does the other meat become holy? And what's the answer? <coughs> <clears throat> What's the answer here? We see, um, thus says, excuse me, and the priest answered and said, what? No. Not a very long answer, right? Just what they needed, right? No. It doesn't. You see, and the point here, as we saw, is that holiness is not transferable. If I am doing God's work and they were doing God's work, and it was a holy work to work on the temple, they were about his business, but that in and of itself did not make them holy. It doesn't move over like that. And then look at the second question. And he says here, um, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then, the, then Haggai answered and said, So is this people and so is the nation before me, this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So we think maybe that we're doing God's work or his will and that makes us holy. Nope. And actually the opposite is true. If we are dabbling or touching unclean things, we are unclean. And that's the point here. Notice he says, so... Um, is this people, this people's unclean. The implication is you are touching things that are dead. You are unclean. Now this is his people, folks. So what is he talking about? Although holiness is not transferable, sin is always transferable. Sin always defiles. You see, brother and sister, sin will defile you. Is that what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians who were prideful about their acceptance of someone in sin? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 6. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin defiles everything. Nobody has a little bit of leprosy, right? If you have leprosy, you are a leper, right? And so we have here a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then we ask the question, well, what type of sin do we think they were dabbling in which was defiling the work of their hands? What type of sin? Well, the illustration God uses was touching a corpse, touching a dead thing, and then defiling because of touching a dead thing. Now, the Lord could have used other illustrations like leprosy, like I mentioned. He could have used women's menstrual uncleanness. He could have used that. But he chose to use the illustration of touching a dead thing. Why? You say, 
Well, were they touching dead people? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think they were touching dead things, spiritually speaking. Remember, we looked later on in the book of Ezra, and we saw that these Jews had been uh, mixing and marrying with the Canaanites, that there was a, a pattern of that in the Jews' history. We see that throughout in the book of Numbers. They were, they were mingling with dead things. They were, they were mingling with those things that they shouldn't. And evidently, these Israelites were touching dead things. They were about their own business, beautifying their houses, first of all, rather than working for the Lord. But then they turned and trusted the Lord. And yet they were discouraged, and God encouraged them. But yet there was still sin God needed to address. Listen to what Ezra says in Ezra 9.12. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor your, take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace and their prosperity. Do not seek what the world has. It's, 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 it's not genuinely true. It's a phantom of reality. You think they're prospering. They're actually on their way to death. It's dead things. And what about us? Are we touching the things of the world? Are we, are we doing, defiling ourselves through the internet, through TV, through magazines, through unsaved friends? Folks, the companion of fools will suffer harm. Yes, we are to be kind and gracious to those who don't know Christ. And God places us in positions to have acquaintances, to share with them and to be gracious and kind. But we are not to yoke ourselves with those who do not know Christ. And if we do, we are defiled. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul shares with them. So you can be doing everything that God wants you to do, but have sin defiling your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, if you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, the real context is these Corinthians had basically shunned Paul because false teachers had basically put Paul down. You can see the insults throughout that Paul is, is kind of responding to sarcastically. You see that? And in chapter 11, you can see that they're yoked with false teachers, those who are actually not of God but of Satan. And so I think that's primarily what this is talking about because you get the context here. But it applies to everything. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with what? Unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Bilal? It's saying you can't have an intimate relationship in a sense with an unbeliever in a sense you can't be bound in heart you're going to become like them like them or what harmony has christ with belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever now it's interesting god is so gracious that sometimes we are in relationships and as we come to christ and we're in that state and god is gracious to those who are saved let's say someone has an unsaved spouse god is gracious but yet we are not to choose those relationships. We are not to bound our hearts. And notice what he says here. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Remember the temple? We're this, where's temple, right? He dwells in us. And he says, and I, and just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And notice this, do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Don't touch dead things. It affects your relationship with Jesus. It affects your relationship with Jesus. Everything is defiled. Everything is defiled. Remember James chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. By the way, if you just walk in the world and you don't guard your heart, you're going to get stained. It's all over. We have to be diligent to make choices. You need to make choices that are godly, especially in those you hang out with, those who you give your heart over to. With. I'm not saying we're not acquaintances with those who don't know Christ. We want them to come to Christ. We want them. But if you recognize what God says, when we come together, we're going to become like them. That's the way it is. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Well, let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Are you intermingling with dead things? The things of the world. Are you attempting to use the world's ways to do church? Are you intermingling that way? God says to them in verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So this people is, so is this people, that's unclean in context, and this nation is before me, <clears throat> nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. Sin is serious. But God is a gracious God. For any true believer, all you need to do is confess and you're forgiven. Now, if you're not forsaking it, you're not confessing, by the way. If I'm hitting somebody, I'm sorry I'm hitting you. I'm keeping it all right. I'm not forsaking. I'm not really confessing it, right? But if God has changed my heart to see it's wrong, and I confess and turn from that, I'm going to find compassion, and so will you. So then sin is serious. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you are mixing with the world your attempts for a godly marriage, unclean, defiled, if you're, if you're, you're trying to, to build up his body, do you want to become more like Christ, your attempts defiled at church, corporately, through serving everything unclean? But again, the good news is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confess your sin and be right with the Lord. Now, I believe these people did confess their sin. It doesn't say it here specifically, but it's implied in the passage. Look back in our passage in verse 15. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one grain came to a heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. When one came, when one came to the wine vat to draw 50, there would only be 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, and yet you did not, here's the key, come back to me. It's repentance, turning to Jesus, right? Declares the Lord, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple was founded, consider, is seed still in the barn, even including the wine, the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranates, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. He's saying, take a look. You've been about my business now, but you're still experiencing discipline. So what should they do? They should repent. They should confess their sin. They should confess their sin. So again, consider your ways. 
And we all need to consider our ways. Is God's disciplinary hand on us? Maybe it's a deadly attitude of ungratefulness or unforgiveness or worry or anger or fear or bitterness. Those are, those are worldly things. Maybe you're hanging out with the dead, non-believers, if not personally through TV or media or Internet or magazines. Maybe you're talking like the dead, swearing, yelling, ungracious words. Maybe you desire dead things to relieve your pressure the world's ways. What's the solution? The person of Christ. Confess and be forgiven and be forgiven. So they were still under God's discipline, but I believe the implication from the text is that they turned at this point and they did respond. Look at the end here of uh, verse 19. Yet from this day on, what? I will bless you. God doesn't bless disobedience, by the way. We see that, especially with Israel. He says, from this day on, I will bless you. And what was the day? Remember the date? We looked at that specifically. It was 70 years to the day from the destruction of the temple, from that siege. 70 years. God's discipline had moved now, and he was changing, and their hearts had changed, I believe. I believe they changed. And so we have here the implication that from this point on, these believers did turn and did obey the Lord. Because God said, I will bless you from this day on. And so with that in mind, that brings us to the final portion of our passage today, which we'll finish up our our, our message with, where we're going to see his day will come. Encouragement for discouraging times. And more specifically, we're going to see this is encouragement for leaders. This is encouragement for leaders, but yet we all can be encouraged by it. We're going to see this as encouragement for leaders who may be looking at things and seeing how, how shabby it is and, and what is God doing through the situation, and yet God is doing major things. Notice, first of all, we're going to see that God will prevail. Our Lord will prevail. Look at verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came, to, came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the, of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Now remember, he is the man who would be king. But he's not. He should be the king of Judah, and he's not. That's discouraging in and of itself. We'll talk about that later. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. Again, we have this date here, same date. Seventy years from the siege of Jerusalem, and destru- which led to the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people. And notice what he says. The word of the Lord came the second time. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, verse 21. This is the second message. And it is coming to Zerubbabel, the, the, the leader. Remember, Zerubbabel is listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Christ. He is a king in the line of Judah. He's also mentioned in Luke chapter 3, 27. He is in the royal line, and if they were to have a king, as I mentioned, he would be the king. But because of God's sovereignty and over their, in their discipline, we see that they were under the Persians, so he was simply the governor. And on a temporal level, I believe most likely he needed to be encouraged. The Lord is, is bringing some pretty difficult stuff. All the work of your hands is defiled, right? That's kind of difficult, right? Everyone's obeying, everyone's about God's work, and now it's all defiled? Well, hopefully, and we see, I believe they responded, 
but I believe he needed to be encouraged. You know, the same goes for us, those who might lead in different ways. Fathers, you, you, to be a good and godly dad, it's hard if you're discouraged. If you're a mother over your family, it's hard to be uh, a good mother when you're discouraged, a godly mother. Hey, it's difficult to stay focused on Christ when you are discouraged. Now, what might have caused, and I mean, the implication is here, but I think it's supported in the text, that Zerubbabel was probably discouraged. I think there were a few things that might cause him to be discouraged. And the first one, I believe, is Satan. Satan. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. You see, when Satan's attacking, accusing, and tempting us, uh, we can be discouraged. Now, in Zechariah 3, we have a scene in heaven where, Josh, where Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel's contemporary, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, accused by Satan. This is Zerubbabel's contemporary. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Same guy. Standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Isn't that the way it is? You want to follow the Lord, you do the right thing, and all of a sudden you have these voices. Oh, you're such a sinner, you've blown it so bad, there's no way you can do it. God will never have you serve him. Look at how much you failed. Well, no. The truth is if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth is, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Certainly, Satan will attack God's work and God's under-shepherds. We see that here. Also, sin can cause discouragement. Certainly, they were touching dead things. When you're sinning, when I'm sinning, hey, you know, it's discouraging. When you're failing, right? Certainly discouraging. Third thing, possibly just the crummy, uh, insignificant look of this new temple and work versus the old one. That can be discouraging. We saw that already. It doesn't look from our perspective very exciting in the Lord. This temple looks pretty shabby. It's nothing in comparison. And guess who's the leader? It's Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel, you're not building a very nice temple. Certainly could be discouraging, possibly. And also their current political situation would cause them to be discouraged. You see, he was the governor of Judah, not the king, and he was underneath the Persians. And all the nations around them were, were much more strength, had much more strength. It, it, they were a tiny remnant that had no possibility of defending themselves against anyone around them. Totally vulnerable. Totally vulnerable. So then, has anything caused you to slip into discouragement? Doubt, despair, failure, sin, someone else's sin, health problems, family problems, loss of a job, finances. Maybe you're not seeing what God is truly doing in your life. You see, he is going to complete the work that he started, right? He promises that, doesn't he? You serve by his strength faithfully and people don't respond. You've raised your children in a godly way in the fear and the discipline of the Lord, yet they seem to stray and not follow him, whatever it might be, and hurt you. What do all these things have to do? They can all pull our eyes off of Jesus, right? And we can be discouraged. This is the battle we face every day where we focus on the things in front of us, where we focus on Jesus Christ and the truth of what he's saying. And so what God is going to do is Zerubbabel. He's going to give him the eternal picture. He's going to give him the picture that is very important. Look back in our passage. Verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. 
I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms and nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, my servant, declares that I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you notice God is not suggesting anything here? I am going to, verse 21, I will overthrow and destroy, verse 22, I will overthrow, verse 22, verse 23, I will take you and I will make you. Isn't that great? I'll take you and make you. That's what God does with us, doesn't he? Isn't that awesome? God has a definite future plan he is working towards. And sometimes we can be so distracted from what truly is going to happen, we get discouraged with the little things that come our way, which seem to be very big things. To us. Zerubbabel, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What is that speaking of? Do you remember what we saw earlier in chapter 2? It spoke of judgment because this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there, this very passage, Hebrews chapter 12, and it speaks of God's judgment. You see, all the nations around you are prospering and they are much larger than you and they could take you on in a second from your perspective. You're a remnant, you're nothing. But God is over that, and He's going to take care of that. He's going to take care of that. Hebrews twelve twenty five. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less shall we escape him escape and turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Verse twenty six. And his voice shook the earth then. Speaking of the old covenant, when God came to Israel on Sinai, he spoke and it shook the earth and there was smoke and fire. But now there's going to be another shaking. And he says here, he says here, and the voice shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, this is from, it's from our passage, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes Removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, or that things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's going to shake the kingdoms of the earth and establish His kingdom, which we are part of. Which we are part of. And that's what he says here in this passage. Verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. God is going to take care and wipe out those kingdoms that are in rebellion, and he will be the king of kings and lord of lords over that. And notice he says, it's on that day. On that day, verse 23. What day? The day of the Lord. The day, Yahweh's day, which is self-existent one, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ will bring judgment upon the world in his fierce judgment against sinners. And I've got a lot of passages here, but for time's sake, I just want to share one or two with you to remind you of the day of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 110, verse 5. You see, it looks like everybody's getting away with everything right now, doesn't it? It sure does, doesn't it? And the world is just going, spiraling, and everyone is doing everything they want to do kingdoms and, and, and nations do what they want to do. They're, they're cruising along, but it's cruising along to God's, God's day. Psalm 110, verse 5. 
The Lord is at my right hand. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. If he will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. We have Ezekiel chapter 30. I'll just read this for you. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, the day of the Lord. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of dark clouds and a time of doom for the nations. The day of the Lord, God is going to take back his world from the nations that have usurped his authority. We have it in Isaiah. A wail for the day of the Lord is coming from the Almighty. He says later on in Isaiah 13, and he will exterminate sinners from its... You see, the Lord gives the offer of salvation, but if you reject that, if you don't worship the Lord with reverence, if you don't have a changed heart because of Jesus Christ, judgment will come. Jesus speaks of the day of the Lord in his discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He speaks of it in Luke chapter chapter 17. He says in that day it will be like what happened with Lot. When fire and brimstone came from heaven and destroyed it, it will be the same in the day the Son of Man is revealed. So the day of the Lord is God's direct, direct judgment upon the world. And he is telling Zerubbabel, it's going to come, Zerubbabel. All the nations that are prospering, that are, that are oppressing you, the Lord's day will come. The Lord's day will come. Notice in Revelation chapter 19. Actually, you can read that on your own. We see that, that Christ will come and he will make an end to his enemies. And he will kill the rest with the sword of his mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We're going to see that Christ is going to come. He's going to defeat his enemies. But God is so gracious. He first came in grace. Jesus Christ came not to judge, but to bring forth salvation. And we are living in a time where that offer is for you right now. Where if you're willing to humbly acknowledge your sin, be contrite before him with a genuine heart that is broken over sin. God will, will save you if you call out to him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So with that in mind, judgment is coming on sin and sinners. It's coming on sin and sinners, yet God is gracious. He has a plan. He has a plan, and he's going to prevail. It seems like everyone else is going to prevail, but no, God's going to prevail. Zerubbabel, God's going to prevail. Serve with my plan in view. I'm going to shake the nations. They're not going to get away with anything. And notice, not only will the Lord uh, be victorious, he's also going to reign. Look at verse 23, back in, in the book of Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The term Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. This exile uh, group of people were very small in light of the armies around them, but their God is the Lord of armies. He says, I'm going to do this on that day. On the day that I take care of the nations. On the day that I prevail over all those who rebelled against me. On that day. I'm going to make you something, Zerubbabel, on that day. So what's being said here? 
Is he speaking of Zerubbabel literally? Let's take a look here. Notice he says, he talks about my servant and a signet ring. And if we look at these terms, this will help us understand what he's speaking of here. Now certainly this term, my servant, speaks of those who serve, and Zerubbabel was his servant. But also this term, my servant, was used to speak of those who were a type of Christ, who typified what Christ would do. We see that in Isaiah 53, that my servant will justify the many. Jesus is, is, his, is the servant. We see this term speaking of my servant David as God's servant, but yet we see even in Ezekiel that from David's line would come one who would reign. My servant David speaks ultimately at times in the Old Testament of Christ. It's foreshadowing from David to Christ. And here we have a foreshadowing from Zerubbabel to Christ, as I believe. Look at Jeremiah 33 for a moment. We see this foreshadowing and how David, my servant David, actually speaks of Christ at this point. Jeremiah 33. Behold, days are coming, verse 44, or verse 14, declares the Lord, where I will fulfill my good word which I had spoken to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Hey, he's going to keep his promises. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And at that, and in, and this is in the name in which she, which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord: David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And then in the book of Luke, we have uh, the Lord through an angel sharing with Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. And he shall be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him his throne, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Just like David is his servant, there was a, a, a typification of what Christ would do. He pointed to, ultimately, the Messiah. And we see the same thing here, I believe, with Zerubbabel. Jesus was the one who would rule over his people on the throne of David. And here we have the term, my servant, I believe, in our passage, pointing to Christ. Let's go back to that passage in, in Haggai. Notice this term also here, he says, a signet ring. Signet ring. Well, what's a signet ring? Well, he's addressed Zerubbabel four times here in the book of Haggai, the governor of Judah. And now he says, Zerubbabel, my servant. He doesn't say governor. He says, you will be like a signet ring. A signet ring. Well, what's a signet ring? In the Old Testament, it was used in three different ways. One is a personal signature of the person that it represented. It was used to validate royal authority on a sealed document. It was also used to guarantee a future promise. And the key is it always represented its owner. So what's he saying here? On that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, my servant. That's speaking of Christ. That'll be the one that's going to come from your line. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. I will make my servant, who comes from your line, Zerubbabel, Jesus Christ, my signet. He will represent me. He will be my personal stamp, the exact person. He will seal everything I say. The one that comes from you, it doesn't seem like much is coming from you, but what's going to come from you? 
the Messiah. Zerubbabel, you don't see God reigning now. Your work seems insignificant. Your enemies seem to be prospering. Oh, but Zerubbabel, things are not what they seem. The Lord whom you serve will prevail over the wicked nations, and he will reign, and the day will come when he prevails and reigns over all. You see, scriptures are clear that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is going to reign, even though it doesn't seem like it in this world. You know, the God we serve, it seems like we're the, we're the nothing in this world, and everyone else is prospering, we're suffering. The God we serve is going to prevail and reign. Let's look at one last passage. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Christ is going to get it all. And we're in him. You're on the winning side, by the way. And he says here, it says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings of earth, kings, excuse me, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and uh, rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. It doesn't look like Christ is victorious right now, at least in this world. It doesn't look like it. It seems like everyone's getting away with evil everywhere. But the reality is he secured our victory on the cross. He brought about forgiveness of sins. And he will prevail. He will deal with the nations. He will reign as he has promised. Be encouraged. Though it doesn't look like it, the God you serve will prevail. So how can we be encouraged in these troubled times? We need to stay focused on the eternal picture from God's word. We need to stay focused on Christ. We set our minds on the things above. His day will come. His day will come and we are in him. So we've learned a lot from the book of Haggai. First, we are to consider our priorities. Consider our ways. Are we about the Lord's business? Second, we are to consider our Lord. He is with us and doing a marvelous work through us. Third, we are to consider our behavior, confessing and forsaking sin that defiles the works of our hands. And lastly, we are to consider our future in Christ. He will prevail, he will reign, and we are in Christ. I want to close with Psalm 73. Let's turn there together. I don't. I'd like to read the whole psalm, but for time's sake, I'm going to move up a little bit here. Let's look at verse 12. And you can read the the whole thing. It's talking about people who don't believe in God and are prospering. 
Psalm 73, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, and they are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I would thus, I will thus speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Troublesome seeing the world prospering and suffering myself. Right? But notice what he says. It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept up by sudden tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. If you're in Christ, it turns out glorious. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on what he said he's doing. And that will protect you from being discouraged as you serve him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this encouragement. And Lord, we need to confess so often that we focus on this world and this life and the things of this world and we are unwilling at times to allow your truth what truly will happen in the future to permeate our hearts forgive us father i pray for anyone discouraged here who's doing the right thing yet is discouraged about what they see lord god i pray you would help pull their hearts off of those things and onto christ Lord, I thank you for what we have studied in this book. I pray we would consider our ways and we would consider you. We'd consider our behavior and we'd consider our future in Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.